You are listening to the Joe Rogan Experience Review Podcast. We find little nuggets, treasures, valuable pieces of gold in the Joe Rogan Experience Podcast and pass them on to you, perhaps expand a little bit. We are not associated with Joe Rogan in any way. Think of us as the talking dead to Joe's walking dead. You're listening to the Joe Rogan Experience Review. What a bizarre thing we've created. Now with your host, Adam Thorne. This might either be the worst podcast or the best one of all time. One, go. Enjoy the show. Before we start this week's review, I'd like to introduce an old friend of mine, Sean Helvey, who will be joining us for a review today. He and I have a podcast called The Man Made Podcast. It's basically therapy-based talk where we discuss events in life, and he breaks it down really well. He's a behavioral health therapist, has been for many years, and is well-respected in his field. He always has fascinating things to say. He's helped me a lot, just makes sense of my thinking. I encourage you all just to check it out. So follow that link. And um, now he's going to join us in breaking down a Rogan episode so you can get a bit of a feel for how he sees the world. I hope you enjoy. Hey, guys, and welcome to a special episode of the JRE Review. Um... Interesting week. We got Dr. Gabor Mate. Is it Gabor? Yes, Gabor. Gabor. I like that name. Max Lugavia. And then John Peters. He had some stories. Gonna get to that guy later. Fascinating life. Try and figure out what's true and what's not. We've got Sean Helvey here today from the Man Made Podcast. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Good, Glad to be here. And then Todd in a car somewhere remotely calling in. How you doing, bud? Hey, buddy. Just yelling into the phone here. Nice to nice to hear both your voices. <laughs> Great to have Sean on. He's Thank the you, man. Todd. You too. All right, let's let's get into it. What an interesting dude. I did I did hadn't heard of this person and i feel silly because so many people i know have and know his work well have you heard of him todd before this i had only through psychedelics i had heard of him he was in one of the psychedelic um documentaries on netflix i can't remember which one i don't know if it was the newest one with um oh the mushroom one yeah i think he was in the the latest one um what is it how to open your mind or how to change your mind Mm-hmm. okay i thought he was on that one during the mushrooms if not i had seen him on another pod or excuse me on another video um documentary in the past that was about psilocybin yeah well he's i guess he's quite well known people like him they like following him ayahuasca mm. okay and you're a little familiar with him right sean the only reason i've heard of him is because i was at a a retreat um, through a an institute it's called the Animus Valley Institute, started by Bill Plotkin. He's kind of one of the thinkers that that I uh, align with and kind of look to the most. And um, and in that retreat, it's kind of a week long outdoor um, experience with a, just a whole. I, it would take a while to explain the program, but his son, Daniel, was there and uh, and then spoke to the fact that people may recognize him because of his dad and 
that's how I became aware of his existence. But I haven't read any of his work and hadn't heard him speak until listening to this podcast. Mm. Okay. Overall, what was your feel? I know you don't listen to too many Joe Rogans, but uh, how did you find the interaction and conversation? Yeah. Um, well, and let me just say, so uh, thanks for having me here. I am a uh, licensed therapist so in Montana and Tennessee and meet with clients and really try to help people work through their stuff. And so um, this is really right up my alley. Uh, and speaking to the podcast itself, I, you know, it just seems to me like Joe Rogan is a person who has grown up a lot and is a, an excellent role model for healthy communication, open communication, being kind and honest with himself um, and with others about what they're talking about. And I, I really liked the exploration that they had together and and just how he inserts himself but doesn't try to dominate or, you know, because it's his podcast, be the one with the the prominent opinion. But but rather he derives a lot, in this case at least, he derived a lot from Gabor about his philosophy. And, and there was there were some times where there was a bit of back and forth where he disagreed or Gabor disagreed with him and he said, well, let me just kind of push back there. And I felt like that was handled really just well and, and in an adult way and, and in a way that I'd really like to see people handle their conversations a lot more. Yeah, it's interesting to get um, a, a breakdown like that from uh, someone that's newer to Joe Rogan's conversations because this so many preconceived ideas of what the Rogan show is for a lot of people that really haven't listened to it. You know, they've seen some snippets, some clips of him just being stoned with his buddies and then they just decide what this show is. Mm -hmm. Like what he is, how he speaks. And uh, it's always interesting to me when, when somebody gives it a chance and then they show, they're like shocked, surprised with like what the fear factor guy who's a UFC commentator, can kind of do. Yeah, he's he's excellent. I would say my um, aversion to listening to his podcast before was for different reasons than that. I've heard a lot of things that he's said that I thought were thoughtful and, um, and open and really actually cutting edge in a way. Um, I think it's tough for me to listen to a podcast. I don't have a commute anywhere, and when I'm at home, you know— it, I like to be present with my family, so um, I really don't listen to podcasts at all. But uh, but also, I've I've long thought that his podcast was more kind of targeted toward a you know mid twenties to early thirties male audience, and I'm just out of that range, but still out of that range. And it just I, for some reason I had this notion that it was it wasn't meant for me, and maybe that's changing. Hmm. Well, it's tough. It's a time commitment for sure. Um, I I would be interested to know how most of you guys, listeners, um, fit it in your week to listen to that many Rogans. I assume people just put on headphones and get on with their job. They just have the ability to do that. But a lot of people, a lot of people listen. So mm -hmm. uh, it sounded like Gabor went on a bit of a journey. Like he wasn't always this guy. He was a doctor that worked a ton, didn't have a lot of room for his family. And he also kind of 
implied that because of his childhood and upbringing, he kind of brought that trauma into his own parenting style early on. Like he wasn't really around. He wasn't really as loving as he could be. I guess it took him a while. What what did it seem like was the catalyst for change for him? Hmm. I'm, I'm trying to think, I think back. it was anger. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, Tom. I'm chiming in here, guys, but I, Do it. I, I'll just chime in for this one. But I think it was anger that he talked about and being a workaholic and he would get really upset easily and triggered easily by little things. Um, yeah, and I think it was creating trauma in his kids that he was starting to realize was the similar trauma that he had grown up with from getting abandoned by his mother and having to leave his family at such a young age. But that's what I got out of it. Yeah. I remember him talking about that. I I think he also talked about just not feeling happy, um, not feeling satisfied with his life. He had, you know, a family and money, but his relationship with his wife was not super positive. And at some point I, I think he said, you know, people would, um, say to his wife, oh, Gabor is your husband. Isn't he so great? And she would kind of through gritted teeth have to agree even though to her and the person that he was being to her and that's that was by his own admission. Um, he wasn't mm. really a, a present or caring husband uh, or father. Yeah, that would suck. It would be a tough position for her to be in. They'd be like, oh, yeah, he's so great. Mm-hmm. Right. He hasn't called me for three days, but he's great, <laughs> and his kids never see him. But I do. I I see this as a trend. What he, what he's doing, and there are others. I think Brene Brown uh, prominently is is somebody who lived a life of academia, of science, of, of research, um, committed a lot of her time to it, and then kind of separated from that world in large part because what she recognized and what Gabor talks about recognizing is, you know, if you're working 50 or 60 hours a week and, you know, not there for the people that you care about the most, you're not really able to live or practice the things that both of them were coming to realize were the most important, like emotional presence, care, and and love um, that that all of the the things from their professional worlds were pointing to this is what you have to do and so from an intellectual place they understood it for a while and then at some point um Gabor applied it to himself and thought oh if if all of these conclusions that I'm coming to are true how does this apply to me and he realized that it did not and so he changed course it's it is fascinating when you um, take somebody that's obviously very intelligent and aware of what he's learning and good at what he does to see this kind of new truth, this thing that he's been ignoring that really is was staring him and his family in the face their whole lives. And to change, not just to change course, but to commit your entire life then, from then on to that, focus it's almost like i can't believe i didn't see this or even you know anywhere as clearly as he is seeing it now and nothing else matters 
but to figure this out and get good at this and teach it to others. And that's a message that I've heard from you, Adam, in the last few years, a, a realization of a different way of being and then a commitment to the idea that nothing else really matters if you don't go down that path. Um, but I, yeah, I would also say here that it takes an incredible amount of courage to take information like this that comes to you, no matter how many times it does, and eventually say, damn, I have to make some really big changes. Um, not a lot of people do this because what you're looking at here is a complete shift of your identity and how you operate in the world that if you – at the beginning, if you consider it, it's daunting and overwhelming and extremely uncertain, right? And you can even, especially from a doctor's perspective, think about that. If you're a doctor in the mainstream medical establishment and you're considering starting to talk a lot more about psychedelics and emotions as they affect our biology, which is not a super solid science yet, um, and it departs from your field – there's just a whole lot of consequences to that that you have to deal with to really go in that direction. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a brave thing because well, in a way you've got to admit that you were wrong almost to yourself. Like, wow, how I was doing it was wrong. And when you've been successful, which he was, but only in business, you know, and in his medical field, you know, you people ride on that success, they're like, I'm doing things right because I make a lot of money and I'm well-respected and I'm good at what I do. So all the things I must be doing are correct. Yeah, and and I think that changing course there becomes the more successful you are in whatever you're doing, I think the harder it is to change course. So especially impressive in his case. But but then it also, in, in similar to Brene Brown, put this, them in this place of – it's almost like an even higher status than if he hadn't gone that way because he can reflect with I think what most of the people in our culture are currently still doing um, and understand that deeply and it gives him a, a much higher level of credibility than if he had just known this all along um, and, and couldn't really relate to that place of having gone that other way. Yeah. It, I found it really interesting when he was talking about um, people that struggled with heroin. He had some experience with these people and mm -hmm. a lot of them described that as being like a warm blanket put on you from or your or mother a or a hug. Yeah. And it's just wow. this like lack of love response. Mm -hmm. And it, it was fascinating to me that at the beginning when he said, you just can't love your kids enough. I'm glad Joe brought up the kind of helicopter parenting effect mm -hmm. and, and defined the difference. Like, why is, the, why, why is there a problem there? Because I've often thought that. I'm like, well, you can't just baby him too much. That was an excellent part of the conversation. And just to kind of close that last thought, I think what Gabor has done really well and did in that interview really well, at least, is he showed an incredible amount of humility, right? To make that huge shift, you have to – exactly what you said, Adam. You have to be willing to admit that you were wrong and a lot of the things that you were doing were wrong. He even said at some point that he was prescribing things to people knowing what was right 
and not applying it to himself. So he got ADHD medication at 50. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he was like, I would never have prescribed that to a patient. I would have talked to them about what was going on and tried to help them sort through it. And then that's what I did for myself. Um, so he wasn't ready, but it takes a lot of humility to change course. And yeah, so that idea that he talked about, I think it's really cool to discuss um, how how you how we can best care for our children, especially in their first three years, in their formative years, when they form their attachment style, um, and and that you can't love them enough. But then the piece where he discerned it from right the the mama's boy. That's what Joe Rogan called it. Like, well, what about these mama's boys who who you know just whose moms are always there and they're they're kind of and then the, these kids become kind of not independent in any way as they grow older and how is that different and i thought gabor really kind of differentiated it and he said those parents are often uh attending to their children from a place of anxiety from a place of fear of their fear and so really when that parent is responding to their kid it's not about their kids needs it's about the parents' needs. And they are actually validating to their children, you should feel anxious. There is a lot to be afraid of. And that's the message that it passes on. Mm. So from like the kid's point of view when that's happening, they're not requiring like a big hug and a lot of coddling at that time, yet they get it anyway. And they're like, okay, this doesn't seem necessary right now. Sure, exactly. And and then it and it also kind of promotes the idea in the child that they need their parent to do that for them, and that they they can't do it themselves. So, I think. Um, and I would wonder to you, Todd. I know that you're a fairly new father. How how did that information strike you? What did you take away from it? I think <clears throat> for me, I really. Um, I really focused on the anger because I, I can get angry sometimes and I've really tried to deal with my own personal angers away from my kid. But sometimes I still, you know, I end up raising my voice or yelling too much. And it just reminded me that that can be a trauma just as bad as spanking or, um, you know, hitting even. I mean, he, he made it sound like this anger and, and, some of these things that can be traumatic to your children that you don't even realize you're doing can be very traumatic later, later in life. And then to take that and say that genes aren't even hereditary, you know, that some of these, these, these addictions aren't hereditary, excuse me. Yeah. Um, but are caused by trauma at a young age. That was just mind blowing to me. That, that part of um, it. Yeah. And great. And anger is too. And he, but he talked about, I think, um, not necessarily as a parent repressing our anger either, right? Because that is – that gives our child a false sense of a, a person's reaction to their behavior. But finding a way to communicate your anger in a in a productive way, in a healthy way that, that doesn't lash out at your child. Absolutely. And, and letting your child be angry too and not just throwing right. them in his or her room and saying – that anger is bad because it, yeah. it's okay to express those emotions, but yeah, let's, let's figure out how to, how to express them in a, um, a healthier manner. Totally. And if it's not bad for the kid, then it's not bad for the parent either. So our job as parents is to model what it's like to healthily, uh, own our anger and what we can do with it. 
Um, and and just to Absolutely. say here, I'm a new dad too, and uh, I my daughter is ele- 13 months old, and um, and just so much of what he said are things that I already am doing mostly, um, and it just kind of helps me to want to push into it even more, and and really make sure that that my daughter is you know feels supported and loved. And I, I don't think that always means jumping every time something happens. You know, I think there's a way to, it, when a child is experiencing an emotion, to be there with them, but not necessarily tell them that you are responsible for their emotion. Just to let them, to offer them your support. And if in times when they can't handle it themselves, that you're there to carry it for them maybe, but other times to just be there with them in it. So it's not this super reactionary, oh, my kid is crying. I have to jump up and be like, oh, you poor baby. I'm so sorry. But more like – so what we've been doing with my daughter is if she falls when she's walking and starts crying, we don't say, oh, my gosh, or you're okay. But we do go, oh, that was scary, huh? Right. So just to validate her in that experience and then be there. If she's crying, I'll pick her up and hold her and, you know – that those are times that she really needs me, but but not to jump to that too quickly because sometimes she falls and I say, "Oh, that was scary," and then she looks at me and she's like, "How scary was it?" And I'm like, "Well, you're the one that gets to decide, kid." And oftentimes she'll just get up and keep walking. And I'll be like, "All right, <laughs> well done, good recovery." Nice. You know, there was a lot of, I guess, good advice um, for somebody that is a parent to think about, you know, their attachment style, their childhood and how they can now do it better with their kid. But what about people out there and people listening that don't have kids yet and are younger and maybe had to experience parenting that wasn't as nurturing? How do they go about moving forward without a kid and think about also... I guess, giving this kind of positive love and caring to maybe their relationships or even trying to rebuild a relationship with their parents, which is useful. Yeah, those are two. It's a lot. Those are two different questions. But I would say, actually, it starts with rebuilding it within yourself. And I don't know that this is certain, but I believe that at some point, and it was just a very brief statement that Gabor made, um, but he talked about self-kindness or, you know, yes, he did. He, he, and he said it in such – in words that are really consistent with my belief. Um, he talked about um, that if you do something that is wrong, that you determine to be wrong, to, to watch out for coming after yourself from a critical place, but instead to look at what you did from a place of understanding – which leads to forgiveness. That's my piece that I'm adding because understanding does lead to forgiveness. When we can understand what we've done and why it was wrong, but also why we did it, we can understand our patterns and the the pieces from our past that are present in that action, then we can forgive ourselves even though we know we want to do something better the next time or we know there's a better way. Um, so I think that if, for a young person who doesn't have a child – that starts within yourself. How you treat yourself when you make a mistake is going to be consistent with how you treat other people uh, when they make mistakes. 
And so if you want to improve your relationship with friends or your intimate partner or even eventually your parents, which is a huge, a huge and very difficult task for most people, um, the place to start is within yourself. Mm. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And and that last bit I said, you know, how we treat ourselves is how we treat other people. That's most often true. It is not always true. I, I definitely know people who are very harsh toward themselves and are very kind to others. Um, but most often people who are harsh to themselves are also harsh to others. And, um, and it just has a, a degenerative effect on the relationship, right? You can never feel safe making a mistake um, because you just think that it's wrong and you just forego the process of ever understanding why a person does something. But as a as a counselor, I hear people's stories every day and there there's so much consistency between them. People struggle with the same behaviors, then they judge themselves negatively for it, then they feel guilt, then they forget about it, and then they just do it over and over and over again. And and that's a pattern that they're stuck in. People get stuck in these behaviors because they don't ever start changing that process of taking the time to say, hey, okay, I'm a person. A lot of people make mistakes like this. Why am I making this mistake over and over again? There's a reason. And maybe there's something I can do about it. And I can also say that probably being harshly critical of myself when I do it has not gotten me to change it. So I can eliminate that as my path forward and start exploring other options. Hmm. Well said. You know, the, and the last thing I want to touch on kind of moves into that when uh, Gabor was saying that we have multiple brains. Mm. So, you know, the, and people say follow your gut, and there's been a lot of talk about your your stomach flora and all the neurons in there, like having some sort of like – kind of brain but whether it's a metaphor or not i think it's interesting that he kind of separated these three spots your brain your heart and your stomach mm. and you know it, it's easy to be stuck in your head being logical with all your thinking and trying to think yourself through your own emotions yeah that is what our brains naturally do it is easy to get stuck there and the smarter you are <laughs> the more you'll lean on that and there is just a huge limit to the to the amount of solution that your brain alone can provide. I often uh, say this as like it would be like – so if your brain is a computer, um, which it is, sort of is, uh, and your, your heart and stomach, your emotional world is like art, um, creativity, uh, this would be like asking your, your computer to draw a masterpiece. Which, of course, if you've been reading articles lately, a lot of AI kind of programs are now drawing masterpieces and one actually won in an art festival recently. But that is not the point. That is just fine and great for those AI technologies. But the point is computers don't make creative pieces of art. All those AI programs are doing is copying other great pieces of art. They're not coming from a place of inspiration and something that's you know true – True creativity. Like telling uh, a really good story built joke. 
Right. I think I think AIs will be able to do all kinds of art before they can do a solid like hour stand up. Mm. Cuz there's too much emotion in there. Right. Yeah, little personality elements. There's so much nuance to it. Um I have something to add to that, gentlemen. Yeah, let's hear it. Um, well, I just, I think I'm glad you brought that up, Adam, because our emotional, when he said that our emotional system also governs our immune system and our hormonal apparatus, it just makes me think about the amount of times when I'm stressed out and I don't want to eat. And then, you know, you may end up getting sick because you're, you start thinking negatively and it, it just affects your entire psyche. Your psyche affects your entire body and then it affects your immune system. Mm. And it's all based on stress. And then all of a sudden you get sick. I mean, it, it, it makes sense when you think about it, but most people aren't thinking about it that way. And to, yes. to talk about women who have, who have like, you know, a 70 or 80% um, higher risk of autoimmune diseases because of their stress and their pent up anger, because women are, you know, Gabor was talking about how women suppress their anger a lot. They're mm. not like men. They don't get angry as much as we do. Mm. And is that the reason why there's all this autoimmune disease? I mean, that link to me was fascinating. It, it is, a, I think, becoming more and more spoken to as a huge factor in any biological illness is how our emotional world affects it. And it it does seem pretty clear to me, too, that when you – start to just track yourself as an organism, you'll notice that those things are all related. And I agree with you, Todd. And it has a lot to do with your diet and your sleep too. And and both of those things, when you have, by the way, when you take good care of your biological body, you tend to have more space to process your emotions in a healthy way, right? And the more, the more that your organism isn't well taken care of from a biological place, the less extra space you feel to deal with the profound depths of the emotions that you feel and it feels overwhelming and then you tend to avoid it. Yeah. What a great yeah. guest though. And what a great conversation. Well, and and can how I just important. interrupt you, Adam? Cause there's one other piece that we didn't talk about that I think would be cool to touch on before Let's do it. I, I go, but it's the, the use of psychedelics in understanding these things as, as they discussed it on the podcast. Mm. Yeah. We definitely should hit on that. Yeah. Um, I, I just, I'm, I'm amazed. I'm so grateful to Gabor for having gone through his journey with this because there, I think that what's happening is, well, similar to how our brains are getting separated from our hearts and our stomachs, our stomach brains. Um, uh, we, the, the world of healing is also very separate. So you have these groups of people that are like, psychedelics man you got to do them and they're the way and you'll have some profound realizations that will change your life which is true um and as a person who's used psychedelics myself i i can attribute a lot of the big realizations in my life to those experiences but the other piece that and i think what they really focused on was the limitations of using psychedelics for these realizations alone. They they said multiple times that it is a part of, it can be a part. It doesn't have to be either, but it can be a part of your healing journey. The, the shortcoming is because what you experience when you use psychedelics, as they talked about, and I agree, 
is your habitual mind goes offline and you become in touch with these truths about our existence and being in the world that you you lost a long time ago because of your conditioning, because of your environment, because of how you were attached to your parents. And that that realization in, in those moments when you're under the influence are huge. I mean, anybody who's done it will attest that they understood something in those moments that they felt to be absolutely true. And then the next day, try to ask them to tell you about it. What, what did you experience? What did you understand that you, that you hadn't before? Almost impossible to put it into words. And then the other piece and the really difficult piece and the piece that I think a lot of people miss with uh, this type of healing is integration. You have to take what you learned, which is unfathomable, which is intangible, which is something that you can't put into words and you have to let it. And I'm going to use an expression that I've heard from a lot of people that I really respect. You have to let it work on you. Right. So if you now take your logical mind, which is conditioned with all your habitual patterns, and you're like, okay, I'm going to take my realizations from this experience and I'm going to f- plot them out on this chart and then I'm going to apply it. Not going to work. <laughs> it's just not going to work. If only. Yeah. So y- y- what, what you're better served to do rather is allow that feeling, that state of knowing something that you – that in those – at the time that you were under the influence that you knew to be true to let it work on you, to bring it into your awareness and allow it to tell you those messages in the ways that it does which are abstract and non-linear and non-logical and just be with it every day over time. And what will happen is those realizations will come into your being in a way that at first isn't really comprehensible but eventually will lead you to looking at situations differently and understanding them a little bit differently and slowly and over time your understanding of that message as it applies to your life will become more and more profound and eventually and hopefully to the point where your new habitual way of being has integrated that understanding yeah that's why I'd want that maps program to really take off. So we have a lot of therapists that are legally allowed to guide people through these experiences. Because right now it's shaman, you know, right. quotes, shaman based, and you don't know what you're getting. Maybe you get a good referral. That could be useful. And I'm sure a lot of them really put their heart into it, but you know, uh, Talk about that. What is MAPS? It's the the program that is try, working with the FDA to get licensed therapists, uh, probably psycholo- psychiatrists. Psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy. Not just that. MDMA. Right. They also do ketamine. Mm, that's um, right. And uh, what is the drug that they go down to Mexico for? Remember the name of that one, Todd? Is it, is it GHB? No, Ibogaine. Oh, yeah, that's the one that they talked about, too. Yeah, Ibogaine. so, and th- that's way off, I think, but also has shown a lot and of peyote. promise. Yeah, I don't know all the things, that they're ch- but they're trying to expand in all the directions mm-hmm. for useful work, and the FDA is on their side, even though it's tricky because none of these drugs are legal, and they're not going to make them legal for this, so it's kind of like the unspoken 
rule part of it. They're like, yeah, you can do that, but we just won't pay attention to it. And they're expanding these clinics all over the country. There's already a ton of the ketamine ones. Right. And I agree that this needs to be a more accessible part of the healing journey and and in a way that I think it would be the most beautiful if we were able to combine the medical and scientific side of our understanding with this other side, which I don't think that we'll ever be able to completely quant. What we can do is quantify results. Um, I don't think that we'll ever be able to understand the mechanism because it's not for us to understand. Uh, but that that union could be absolutely beautiful. But again, it will be based upon not just having an experience with a therapist who takes you um, – through who facilitates a journey on on a substance with you, but then also the after the fact integration of the learning that happened in those moments. Um, That's going to be a super important part. Right. It's not a free fix. No. And that's, I think the biggest message that I, I would say just in general that I'm always trying to espouse is nothing, no path forward in your healing journey will be, as quick as taking a pill or as coming to a realization in a moment. That's not how it works. It will never work that way. Uh, change is slow and gradual. And the reason is because we, of all of the habitual ways that we have come to be based upon our attachment and our experiences. And to unwind those just takes time. But it can be done. It definitely can be done. And I think – uh, for anybody who has really had the courage and humility, and that's a word that I would really use for Gabor, uh, I think he, he really showed up humble. Even the way that he talked about the shaman at the ayahuasca retreat, pulling him out and saying, hey, your energy is too dark and we're going to work with you alone. And all of these people who have come here to work with you, they're going to just work with our other five shaman. And And he said his ego struggled with it. And then Joe said, oh, did you have a hard time accepting it? He said, no, I accepted it immediately. I knew that they were right. That's, I mean, imagine what he had to give up in that moment to accept that. And to to be able to do that shows great humility. And it is an important quality, an important value to possess if you're going to go on this journey. Mm. That's great. Yeah, that must have sucked for him. Because he's going down there as like the man. The man. And then they're like, dude, you're You're nuts. You're all fucked up. Yeah, you need to go sit over there. Like, unbelievable. Wow. Well, there we go. And he dedicated all the rest of what he does to this, which is awesome. Yeah. I love that. Look, I know you need to get off, Sean. I do. I want to thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed the conversation, and I have many, many great conversations with Sean, um... I love his breakdown and insight into most subjects. Uh, please join us on the Man Made Podcast. There's going to be a link in the bio. Get you over there. Uh, there's a back catalog in there. We'd love if you're used to putting up and talking and listening to me talk. That's going to be fine. You could be able to tolerate it, but everything Sean brings to the table is always good. So thank you for joining us today, Sean. Hey, thanks so much for having me on, Adam. All right, let's jump over to... Max Lugavere. So, yeah, make sure you're as insulin sensitive as possible is like a big, a big thing that he said. Insulin sensitive. So, 
I don't know. That that to me at first sounded like a bad thing, but I think I just didn't understand exactly what he was saying. But um make sh- I think he's saying don't overwhelm your insulin response in your body with like too much sugar all the time. Is that what it was? Yeah, that's what I got out of it, man. It's just put you know the the a minimal amount of sugar in your body and you should be okay. And, you know, obviously exercise was a, a huge, huge, huge factor in both Alzheimer's, you know, staving off Alzheimer's as well as, um, you know, creating this body that, that is going to be healthy for a long time is, is, and not get sick with Alzheimer's because you're not putting shit in your body and, and overly processed foods. Yeah, the processed food one is difficult uh, just because it's everywhere and it's quick and it's, you know, if you're in a rush, like so many people are in a rush all the time and it's like, oh, just get this crappy meal just quickly. But I guess we just don't really often think about the consequences of, you know, a few McDonald's here and there probably adds up pretty quick. Yeah, I'm sure it does. I don't think it – I think if you're putting all that other good stuff in your body, most of the time, though, I think having a burger from Mickey D's every once in a while is, is okay. Yeah, you're probably right. I mean, that's another thing. It's moderation, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have you read his book? I looked into his book after the podcast. Um, I definitely want to buy it. Yeah, I mean, he. I liked a lot of what he said. And again, he starts off by saying, look, I'm not a doctor. I'm not formally trained here. But oftentimes, these journalist types, they're really good information collectors and, and like organizers of information. So, so in some ways, they're just really good researchers. They're not in like the academic sense of research, but they they do a good job of like collecting a lot of information and working through to what seems to be the most like the truth in it, or at least you would hope that from a good journalist. Yeah, absolutely. And well, and he has a, you know, a link because of his mother with the Alzheimer's thing that created this sense of urgency from him. It sounds like he devoted his life to it because of what happened with his mother. Yeah. I like so what that's he going to create. I like what he said about if he had it, what he would do, and it was to get on the ketogenic diet. And that one, like, he doesn't think that maybe carnivore ketogenic is sustainable for an entire lifetime, but uh, it definitely has its place. Yeah, I mean, he was he was also talking a lot about having a salad a day, keeping the doctor away. He said that towards the end, but I appreciated that because I do love meat. And, you know, when you and I went on the all meat diet, it felt amazing. But I also, you know, was also eating salads as well with minimal dressing. I think the dressing thing is huge to keep. Even Joe talked about that with not having those processed um, dressings and, and seed oil, you know, that only olive oil should be the only thing you eat. Yeah, it sounds like um, a lot of olive oil you should eat. I don't know if I eat – I don't think I consume enough olive oil. And I like it. I should. 
I could put it on more things for sure. Yeah, that salad thing was huge for me though. He called it the lutine and zoeanthine. It says they are they're they're in like yellow and orange produce, so like peppers and then also um, leafy greens like kale and and spinach and stuff. But it those those are two molecules that you know protect against cognitive decline mm. in huge numbers. Yeah, I don't think a bit of salad's gonna hurt anybody. Even if you're doing keto or carnivore, I mean, there's there's got to be some good stuff in certain vegetables. I just get lazy with salads and kind of, I don't know, I just forget to eat them. Or, or if I'm at a restaurant, I just don't think to order, you know, you, you can get steak sliced up on a salad. And I never think to order that. Right. I was a bit bummed that he right. uh, didn't like butter. That he had some some harsh words. Heavy cream is really good. It has like those globuloids or whatever that keep it all uniform. But as soon as you turn it into butter, you lose that. So he was a little against butter, which is a bummer because I was just getting behind butter and adding it to everything. I know. I was feeling that too, man. He said it was the milk fat globule membrane, which is beneficial. It it gets taken away when they turn it into butter. Hmm. Yeah. I, yeah. So it has a negative effect on, on blood lipids. So butter can have a negative effect. So yeah, maybe we should cut back on the butter and start just doing heavy cream. Well, I like doing heavy cream in those kind of bulletproof coffees. That's, gr that's a great addition uh, to put in there. So I don't really know what else I would have heavy cream on. I guess they use it to like what just add to sauces, right? For like pasta and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I mean I guess it, it doesn't really work in a pan though as much if like I use butter so much to you know, when I'm sauteing veggies and stuff like that. I guess I'm gonna switch to olive oil now when it comes to that. Mm. Yeah. Cook it up. And he I guess you he know? said higher temperatures he uses I think sometimes at the avocado oil or the beef yeah. talloin. It's supposed to be better at higher temps. I guess it doesn't break down whatever's good for you um, inside of the oil. Yeah, you're supposed to use avocado. But how often are you really using that high of temperatures? I don't know what the temperature is on that. Yeah, I'm not sure unless you're – I guess if you're cooking a steak, it's getting pretty high. So if you're doing that in a pan – but yeah, right. I'd yeah, I'd still stick with put, butter. Come on, you got to do butter. Got to put butter on steak. I I would maybe just don't eat so much butter. I don't know, but it's so important to get these types of messages because again, they talked about what was it the Tufts, um, compass, that stupid chart they went oh, over. Yeah, from Tuff University. So ridiculous. The man. JRE Companion Instagram, which I love, the, the guy over there is great and um, always posts such good um, um, Instagram posts to go along with each podcast. And he put that chart up, and some of the comments were just brilliant. You remember some of those? It's like, oh, the tough oh, yeah. guys well, must well, work for all, Kellogg's. Yeah, because the, it, okay, so it has this rating system. And well, I guess most people would probably know this because they already listened to the to the podcast. But having uh, frosted mini wheats as like the top four, it was in the I think it was the fourth one down was frosted mini wheats. 
just yeah. unbelievable. Like I mean, what? No, no one, way is that, that shit no good for you. No way that's good for you. It no can't way. be. No way. And then egg yolks. Egg yolks in, um, or excuse me, not egg yolks, but egg whites or an egg substitute uh, fried in in oil is better for you than just an egg with an egg yolk. Like it just, I would say that that thing is completely bunk. Yeah. It's, I don't know who the hell, well, the the big thing is we don't know what factors they were looking at to develop that chart, but whatever factors they used, it just does not read well. It just doesn't make any sense to the average person's body to, I mean, there was like highly processed shit near the top and I just can't ever believe that's going to be good for you. It was almost like this is the food you should eat if you don't have access to better foods. Is is the way I saw right. it. Right. <laughs> you know, like if if you want to get your vitamin C and you you can't get it elsewhere, then drink sugary orange juice. It was just very strange. So, yeah, I would say st- steer clear of that um, study. And also, the other study that they talked about that was debunked as well or, or completely um, falsified is the this Alzheimer's study that this Sylvan, this Dr. Sylvan, let me look at my notes here. Um, Dr. Sylvan Lesney from the University of Min- Minnesota, they were talking about how it's called the amyloid el- hypothesis about how your brain ends up getting these plaques on it if you have Alzheimer's, right? Mm-hmm. And this doctor uh, was saying that, you know, in a, in a rat study or a mouse study, they had they injected it with this certain, uh, I'm not sure what they injected it with, but it, it created this, uh, these same plaques. And she was saying that... Um, that what she was telling everyone in the, in the medical um, field is that she had found a way. Oh, that's what it was. She had found a way to get rid of these plaques in a mouse, right? And their all of their um, pictures and stuff were completely. They had been flagged on a peer site because of image doctoring. So she was totally, or he, I'm sorry, was lying this entire time about these plaques uh, in the brain and how they had been completely falsified, her papers, because they had used Photoshop or some sort of, um, you know, copy and paste method, and and it was falsified. And they've been using this drug, you know, and it was, it was, has been used for Alzheimer's patients, and it's off of a paper that was, was absolutely false. And they're still using it to this day and it doesn't seem to help people and it's also causing like a bunch of brain swelling and tons of other problems i can't believe that the fda put that through because didn't he say like eight out of the ten doctors on the board were like this shit doesn't help yeah well now it's it's been it it, you know the drug was not only approved but it's approved off fraudulent studies nuts and they know that they're fraudulent, and it's still been approved. Like, they need to flag that and take it off the market immediately. Well, the, these people have so much protection, though. If, you know, the whole 
um, mRNA, Pfizer, Moderna, vaccine protection stuff. It's like they, it's all the pharmaceutical companies want to do moving forward is, yeah, we'll make you drugs, but if we mess up, you can't sue us. And it's like, hold on. How, how good at making these drugs are you going to be if there's no consequences for you doing a bad job? Like you get all the money and then none of the backlash. It doesn't seem to work for my brain. Well, I think the best thing we can do, and according to Max and this conversation he had, is to just get rid of all this processed food. And hopefully we live in an environment that isn't full of pollutants as far as environmental pollutants. And Yeah, good luck with that. that Where are you going to live? Alaska? I don't know. He talked about how you could go to Nigeria. Um, but yeah, it was, it was interesting though to, you know, again and again, this, this same kind of topic comes up about just the way, what you put in your body is going to help you in, you know, later in life. And they don't know exactly what creates Alzheimer's, but they are, you know, like he's saying, as, as long as you're not putting a ton of sugar into your body, um, I think you can, you can at least, keep it from happening uh until you're old right like age was the biggest factor so you can't really stop yourself from aging but if you can do all those other things until you get old hopefully you can not have alzheimer's i don't know yeah i wish that they could just boil it down to a few things and i feel like that's what we're getting closer to so it's like after the huberman podcast about alcohol it's like okay mm-hmm. try to minimize alcohol look we all love it most of us and it's pretty addictive, and it's a lot of fun. But if you can keep that under control, mostly, it's going to benefit your aging. Keep your sugar intake fairly low, and it seems like tons of sauna. Exercise, obviously, is super useful just for your body, your bone density, and feeling good and looking better. Um, but some people have injuries, chronic or otherwise, and it's really difficult for them to exercise in any really structured way but we can all sauna and hopefully that you know get access to it i mean i guess access is a bit of an issue but most gyms have a sauna and gyms aren't that expensive so even if you didn't go and work out you could just use the sauna and that would probably be very beneficial for your health right because again he was he's just talking about the blood flow to your brain and throughout your body right that's the the best thing for you for your brain yeah well it's, it's like it, exercise for your brain and it's also exercise for yourself it it's it's the same in a lot of ways as cardiovascular exercise even though you're not moving because it gets your blood moving faster your heart pumping more and you just sat there well which is really interesting to me what was this uh study out of finland um, that they checked and like most houses have a sauna there so it's not a health bias, meaning, oh, in, in the U.S., most people they are using saunas or also working out. Maybe they're a bit health conscious. But in Finland, it's just everybody. So they could even study right. people that maybe had pretty sedentary lives or pretty unhealthy um, habits. Maybe they smoked. Maybe they drank a lot. And they are still seeing massively reduced negative health consequences um, because they add this thing. And it's it's easy to yeah, do. Yeah, that's amazing. It's easy. Just sit in there. Sure, it's really freaking hot 
at first, but you do get used to it over time, and then you can hang out there. Also get a cold plunge if you can. You know, take a cold shower. That's usually accessible, and then you can kind of give you a few more minutes in there. Yeah, and eat your eggs, buddy. Eat your eggs with the yolk. That's it. Oh, and the frosted mini-wheats, according to the tough compass chart. No, stay away from those. <laughs> so stupid. I remember just staring <laughs> at that chart going, what? Oh, Didn't anyone dude, get finished can't... with this and go, I think we fucked this up, guys? Hold on, though. The mouthwash thing. We got to talk about that. Oh, yeah, that was, was so weird. Was some craziness about the mouthwash and, and after you work out how let me look at my notes here. It said, yeah, stop using mouthwash. Um, it's creating a huge amount of high blood pressure. Right. Workouts and all the, um, what else was it saying after your workout? Like well, there was a bacteria. All the good. The bacteria yeah, on bacteria. your tongue that helps you break down some foods into um, like nitrates or nitrites. And mm -hmm. then you can make more nitric oxide, which is good for your muscles. It's in a lot of the pre-workout stuff. But if you use a lot of this mouthwash, it's just killing that, stopping this process, messes with your gains, and is really bad for your blood pressure. I don't know what dentists are going to think about this, but I don't know. I don't really trust dentists anyway, to be honest, for the most part. Yeah, it said there was a, there was a huge spike in blood pressure for people who use mouthwash every day. That's nuts, because that's what we're told to do. That's like what healthy people are like, floss every day and mouthwash and toothpaste and keep the keep your cavities from forming and and who knows? Maybe it's like the opposite. Maybe often that's bad, really yeah. bad for your teeth. It certainly seems like it's bad for the rest of your body. Yeah, don't do it. And stay away from the fluoride and the, and the glyph glyphosate. Glyphosate or glyphosate? Uh glyphosate let's go with that yeah the glyphosate in your breads stay away from that too mm, bread's so good though that's such a bummer well you can still get healthy bread and and organic breads that are that don't you know aren't sprayed with with that roundup gly or glyphosate right yep make your own bread do tom yeah, go to a bakery that makes their own mm-hmm yeah, there's ways around it. It's just good to be informed, I think. That's why these podcasts are so important, because there are people out there that just don't know. Like, I learned a lot from this, right? So it, it, assuming that you think it's true, and you're like, okay, moving forward, I'm going to be more aware of these things, they're probably actually quite small adjustments that you can make in your life and get reap pretty big benefits from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like this guy. Yep. I hope I hope he comes on more. It sounds like he's going to, and you know, I'd I'd like him to be one of those like recurring um, guests. Even if a lot of his message is the same, I think it's important to kind of go over the, that stuff again. I mean, look, a lot of Rogan stuff is very samey, but it's important to hear. You know, it's important to have those good messages, kind of, you know be reiterated into your brain every three months or so and be aware of it and see what the new information is that's come out. So let's get this guy back on, hopefully. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm buying his book. It was um, Genius Life, Genius Foods. Nice. Yeah. 
Well, let me know what you think of that. All right, let's finish up with John Peters. What a character. He's like another example of those very famous celebrity types that have had a lot of power. They've been very famous for a long, long time. Joe's had – it's usually with rock stars that they come on Joe's show and they – you can tell they're very full of themselves. You know, everything that they know to be true or they say is like fact. That's it. Like it almost seems like they don't get challenged very often. And uh, it's kind of hard to listen to them sometimes because they they all seem to do the same thing where they go on these rants and they're just used to people sat there listening. to. I feel like Joe handled it well, especially at the beginning when he John was saying that he thought uh, Luke Rockhold in the UFC was like being a bitch or a, a pussy and. You know, it just wasn't true. Obviously, his understanding of MMA is, like, at least in the modern era of MMA, was not super on point. And, I mean, Luke Rocco is, you know, a savage in the ring. Like, he's great. And what he was doing is showing a lot of heart. And Joe was cleverly able to kind of turn that around to where John was like, oh, yeah, good point. Yeah, he was great, and he is strong, instead of just kind of giving him a bunch of shit. So that was clever that yeah. Joe did that without without insulting him, you know? But there, there, there was kind of a lot of that balancing Joe had to do in this podcast. I'm, I'm almost glad it only went on for about, what was it, like an hour? It was an hour, yeah, and I was I was ready to, uh, yeah, to leave the conversation for sure. I wanted to hear more about his movies because, look, the guy has produced uh, incredible incredible movies and he clearly knows how to sell his ideas and he clearly has a lot of amazing ideas i mean that he's an idea guy and i will say that as much as his ego was bugging me i do think that he's trying to he claims that he's you know going to a therapist and you know his new wife who i think he's dating now or maybe maybe he's just dating her i don't know this new woman in his life that he mentioned a few times is you know, having him listen to Joe uh, Desperenza and go to therapy. And he kept saying how she saved his life. And he did talk about some of, you know, this anxiety that he's had his entire life that has been brutal for him. I did appreciate him saying that after all of the bravado in his stories, he did come down to earth a little bit there towards the middle. Um, You know, but he was all over the place and it was hard to, it was hard to kind of discern where he was going most of the conversation because he was all over the place. And look, the guy has been a, a movie or not a movie star, but a, a producer of, of stars his whole life. So how do you get rid of that? You know, you have to kind of realize that what you were doing is insane and, and try to slow down a little bit. And it sounds like he's trying to, yeah, we definitely saw like both parts of that in there. Like the bravado stories of all the fighting. I never lost a fight. I did a Superman punch. <laughs> I beat everyone up. You're like, all right, dude. You're 80 years old. You're talking to me like my early 20-year-old friends used to. But then you're right. He he was he did show quite a lot of honesty and humility throughout, you know, when he was talking about 
um, God, even some really personal things like difficulty with lovemaking or, um, you know, almost sleeping with his friend's wife and losing his friend and how difficult that was for him. And I mean, there's definitely been a lot of reflection lately for him that's yeah. probably really useful. I would just say try not to wait till you're 80 years old to do that because, you know, you might have a lot of things to feel bad about. Well, he said so much off-the-wall stuff, it was hard to decide whether it was true or not. I mean, at, near the end, he was saying he has a bullet in his chest and that it's still there. Yeah. I um, actually looked it up online to see if it was true, and it was just it just talked about, you know, other people mentioning it on the Joe Rogan podcast. That's all I could find about it. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, I imagine there's there's some truth in all of his stories. I, I'm very inclined to believe that his childhood was as bad as he said. You know, maybe he's inflating yeah. some of it, but, you know, he saw his dad die and then uh, had to go to juvie forever. It's it's like he, he's definitely had a rough time early on and feels like yeah, he has I, a lot to yeah. prove. Totally. And it, it re- kept reminding me of the first uh, Gabor talk that with that we went on and on about today um you know because it was such an important chat that gabor was talking about this trauma and how it creates um you know these stories later on in life and it reminded me of this guy reminded me of trump a little bit about how he just fabricated seemed like he was fabricating a lot of these stories and he thought that they were true at least from what i could tell what he was telling joe he believed to be true yeah well he's probably told them so many times it's hard to remember the exact details because you know he does seem like a talker and a storyteller and he's a you know this is what he does so he puts stories together for for film and you know you you can change him in your own mind we've all done it we all have some stories from the past that we've told lots of times you know they make us feel great they make us sound great but the reality is it didn't really go that way. And when you hear enough of right. them, like you almost punch Jack Nicholson, Nicholas in the face. And, mm-hmm. you know, uh, what was that? Some guy broke into his house and he like jumped on him from a balcony and he beat him up. He said he jumped on him naked, naked from a balcony. <laughs> I mean, you know, maybe a lot of elements of that story are true, but it's 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 just kind of hard to believe it and follow it and then it's a shame because it takes away from the other bits that are maybe more sincere and real and then to like feel for the person and yeah and and again a lot of this comes from trauma and we heard about that with 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 our first guest with mate i mean it it just reminded me again and again this poor you know, 77-year-old John Peters is still dealing with so much trauma from his childhood that he can't even tell an honest story to this day. Yeah. It's fucked up. But super rich and has made a bunch of good movies. I love that he loved the new Top Gun. Uh, for anyone that still hasn't oh, seen yeah. that, it's dope. He said he watched it like 10 times. I'm not surprised. I can't believe I only watched it once so far. It was so good. Well, like, what a brilliant story. But that's it. He's he's a storyteller anyway. 
I mean, his job is to take an average story and make it amazing. So you would imagine yeah, a lot of these guys kind of do that, you know, fabricate things in their own right. Well, he's good at doing that for storytelling. That is for damn sure. I mean, he's what has produced over 90 movies and most of them you've heard of. I mean, Batman, uh, the good Batman, too, with Michael Keaton. You know, mm -hmm. that was one of my favorites yep. from when we were growing up. Which is Flash Dance. Yep. Uh, God, the what is the Werewolf of London one or Werewolf of no, not Werewolf of London. What is it? Um, Rogan was talking about it early on. I thought it was Werewolf I mean, of so London. There's so many, dude. Yeah, brilliant movies, uh, and they're all kind of different, and they've got creepy elements, and they're just good stories with great actors. I mean, yeah, what what an incredible life he's probably lived. But that's the end result is. You got like a manic talker that no wonder he wore himself out after an hour. <laughs> right. I mean, it was wearing me yeah. out. Bless him. Yeah. I mean, I did some research after though, because I was, I was just mesmerized by the amount of movies that he had produced that I went and looked at his, uh, you know, Wikipedia site and just looked up all the, the films and it's, it's an incredible amount. And and they're all good. Yeah, it's made me actually want to There's go back actually, and watch some some of the uh, classics that I enjoyed that he was a part of. Yeah, it looks like there's a new film that just came out that's actually about him, where Bradley Cooper portrays John Peters. No shit. Called uh, Licorice Pizza. Huh. Yeah, they didn't mention it in the pod, but I, I noticed it when I was doing the, some research and. Um, yeah, yeah, Bradley Cooper portrays him while he's married to Barbara Streisand, so I'm going to have to watch that one. Yeah, that sounds interesting. It's worth it. I mean, if Joe has him on again, you know, it's it's kind of cool to get to know, you know, maybe we have more patience for listening to him next time, you know, because you'll be used to how he speaks and we'll focus more on his life. Or maybe Joe will, like, interview him slightly differently or he'll be maybe a little bit more relaxed because he did seem pretty revved up for sure. Yeah, I think there was an element of that for sure and Rogan just didn't know how to treat it so he just let him talk. I thought I thought Rogan did a great job to be honest. I mean, he kept it kind of fun. He talked about MMA a lot just to kind of, you know, and he he was still willing to correct him when he was off or forgetting a fighter's name or just getting a time period wrong. And that's pretty useful to keep someone on track, keep them honest. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, no, he, he did a good job by not speaking. I mean, he couldn't really speak. So no. what, what else are you going to do? Mm-hmm. Yep, it was one of those. Well, let's uh, call it for this week. That was an interesting week. I liked I, I it, it was interesting reviewing the different guests this week for sure. And uh, it was great to have Sean on as well. Thank you, as always, guys and gals, for listening. Um, remember to go over to check out the Man Made podcast. Again, the link will be in the bio for the episode, so it'll be at the top. You just click it, and you can check out some of those podcasts that Sean and I do. And thanks, um, Todd, for joining us in the car from afar. Thanks, buddy. All right, see in you guys. car from afar. <laughs> see you next week. Bye.